Good morning, church family. I hope you're all doing well. If you're visiting with us this morning and you don't know who I am, my name's Chad. I'm the pastor in training here, and it's a joy to be bringing to you guys the Word of God this morning. As we are in this Advent season and this Advent sermon series, meditating on the birth of Christ, and as I'm going to talk about this morning a little bit, the birth of John the Baptist, I couldn't help but think of the birth of my first child, a son named Zeke. It was one of the scariest and best days of my life. At 36 weeks, Audrey went in for a routine appointment. You know how it is, ladies, by the end of the pregnancy, you have those weekly appointments. And Audrey was going in for a routine one, in a hurry, get to this appointment, got to get to the grocery store, I've got places to go and people to see. One of the first things they do in those appointments is check her blood pressure, and they checked her blood pressure and said, oh, this blood pressure cuff is broken, let's grab another one. So they grab another one, and they say, oh no, the first one wasn't broken, your blood pressure actually is 160 over 90 something. We need to wheel you across the street next door to the hospital, and you need to get some tests taken. And Audrey calls me and says, the nurse seemed really nervous at first, but they said it's going to be okay. I'm going to go grocery shopping. I'll be home soon, but I got to go to the hospital and get some tests done. And so tests were run. I didn't do the research to re- figure out what those were. You two would probably know what they were, but um, something about platelets and her liver, and she's got this thing called preeclampsia, and she's not going home. This is very serious. Chad, pack the bags and come to the hospital right now. And the option was to have a C-section right then and there or to try to induce pregnancy. And Audrey said, I really don't want to get cut open. Can we try to induce? So we spent the night in the hospital with those entry-level ways of inducing, giving her some medicine, checking her what felt like every 30 minutes. We're getting woken up through the night, and they're checking her. And in the morning, she's no closer to having a natural birth. So they start upping the ways that they try to induce Sparing you all details, but they finally do one that makes Audrey feel really funny. She thinks, oh man, I have to go to the bathroom. I feel really funny. And so they unplug uh, the monitors that are monitoring Zeke. She goes to the bathroom, and I start seeing the nurse in the room with me start getting really anxious. Now, I I never asked her, to be honest, if she's a Christian, but I believe the Lord is causing her to be anxious about something. And By the time Audrey's barely cracked the door to come back out of the bathroom, she says, Audrey, sit down. We need to check on this baby right away. I have a really funny feeling. I promised the guys I wouldn't bawl my way through the introduction of a sermon. And I'm not. So uh, she, the nurse starts looking for Zeke, can't find him, lays Audrey back, does an ultrasound, can't find Zeke anywhere. And she runs out of the room and brings in two more nurses and a do- our doctor, and he does an ultrasound, and he can't find Zeke. And at this point, you could guess, my adrenaline's pumping. I'm trying to be like a rock for Audrey, but I'm like inside, I'm bawling already, and I'm just like, it's going to be okay. We're going to be fine. I don't remember what the doctor said, but in my Hollywood mind, it's like they said, code blue or code 99 or we're all going to die, apocalypse now. <laughs> and they're unplugging cords from the walls, getting Audrey's hospital bed out of our room into the emergency operating room. And I'm not allowed to go in since it's an emergency. So I'm sitting outside of the operating room crying as the hardest I've ever cried in my life. 
because I still don't know what's going to happen to my wife or my son. And the nurse comes, and she's hugging me. I don't know her, but I'm sitting down hugging her, bawling. And what she goes in, what feels like 30 seconds later, it was probably literally about seven minutes, comes back out and says, your son is born. He's okay. Your wife is okay. It's going to be a long recovery, but it was an emergency C-section. And it's usually against the rules, but you can sneak in and come grab your son. And I, so I grab little five-pound Zeke. He just fits in the forearm and my palm, and I'm bawling even harder. It was one of the scariest things I've ever experienced in my whole life. And each pregnancy after Zeke's, um, we had three more pregnancies and two more children. I've shared that before. We had a miscarriage. Um, each pregnancy after Zeke's, Audrey and I both struggled with some anxiety. It was hard to stay hopeful, and I'm sure many of you have experienced that. I probably annoyed the heck out of her because I'd come home from work every day during those pregnancies and say, check your blood pressure. What's your blood pressure? She's like, I've checked it. It's okay. There were some days throughout those pregnancies that it was hard to stay hopeful, especially after the miscarriage. Many of you are probably familiar with the well-known proverb. Proverbs 13, verse 12 says this, hope deferred makes the heart sick but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. We live in a world where hope is often deferred. The birth of my son was almost an example of that, and I'm sure everyone has experienced a sick heart from hope being deferred. We live in the time of redemptive history between two advents, between the first coming of Jesus Christ and the second coming of Jesus Christ, and not everything has been made perfect yet. Yes, if we've repented and believed the gospel, we have peace with God, we have forgiveness, we have joy, but we still live in a broken and a fallen world. So many of us have experienced hope deferred, not just once, twice, ten times, maybe thousands of times in your life, and it can make us afraid to be hopeful. Many of us are still waiting on the outcome of something that we hope for. Kids in here, kids, Maybe you're hoping for something for Christmas. Really hope I get this thing. Adults, maybe you're hoping that the holidays with your family won't go as bad as it normally does. Or maybe this is the year that your lost relative will be saved. Maybe you're hoping to be cured of some sickness or cancer or a loved one to be cured of sickness and cancer. Maybe like Zachariah and Elizabeth, you're hoping to have a child. Maybe you're hoping for a new job a financial situation, a better financial situation. Maybe after reading and hearing the news this week, you're just hoping for some good news. We're hoping and waiting for so much. And it begs the question, why do we hope? Why do we even hope? Because as I've said before a moment ago, because the world isn't the way it's supposed to be. Audrey and I were talking about that this week, and I realized, are we going to hope in heaven? I don't know that we're going to hope in heaven. All our longings will be fulfilled. We'll have full and forever joy. We're still waiting for the consummation of our salvation. We've received a foretaste of deliverance, and yet we still live in a broken and fallen world. We hear the sweet, though far off hymn, that hails a new creation. I think that's one of the reasons why I love the Christmas hymns so much, and probably you all do too, because they speak into the hope that we cling to as we wait. I resonate deeply with, <clears throat> O come, O come, Emmanuel, 
and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. And this one, O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above the deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. Yet in the dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. As we wait, we're prone to wonder. And as we wonder, we're prone to wander and experience doubt and fear. Waiting can make us afraid to be hopeful. Because again, we know that hope deferred can make our hearts sick. Think about what people say when something amazing and hoped for happens. We say, I can't believe it. Are you serious? You're not messing with me, are you? I picture a husband saying that to his wife. They've been trying to get pregnant for a long time, and she shows him, look, I, I peed on the stick, and it's positive. Are you serious? You're not messing with me, are you? That would be a horrible joke. I'm afraid to be hopeful right now. I want to believe you. I believe that that's what Zachariah and Elizabeth and many of their friends and family were thinking when they received this news, that Jesus was coming, that John the Baptist was coming. Let's look at some context really quick before we dive into the text. The birth of John the Baptist is foretold in chapter 1, verses 5 through 24. We read that Zechariah is a priest, and he has a wife named Elizabeth, and she's barren, and it says that both are old. And Zechariah is in the temple burning incense when Gabriel appears to him and tells him that he and Elizabeth will have a son and that they are to name him John. And verses 15 through 17 say this, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, that should make us think of Malachi that we just studied, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. We read that Zechariah doubts Gabriel. He reminds Gabriel of he and his wife's old age. And Gabriel says in the Chad translation, look, God sent me here to tell you this. And now that you didn't believe me, you're going to be silent and unable to speak until this happens. So Zechariah comes out of the temple and he has to use some sign language to communicate that he's seen an angel. And the text says, and after these days, Elizabeth conceived. And then in verses 57 through 66, it describes the birth of John the Baptist. Neighbors and relatives all come to rejoice with Zechariah and Elizabeth that God had shown them great mercy. And when they come to name the baby, the text says that they would have named him Zechariah after his father. Apparently naming babies was more of a communal thing than it is now. But his mom still has the trump card. Elizabeth says, no, his name will be John. And everyone's confused because apparently children and boys were usually named after their fathers or at least a relative. So they're like, okay, Elizabeth, we're going to go talk to the head of the house. We're going to go talk to Zachariah. Zachariah, <clears throat> what do you want to name him? And he asks for a writing tablet because he's still mute. And he writes, his name is John. And then in Luke 1, 63 through 66, it says this. And they all wondered. 
And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke blessing God. And we're about to read this whole praise to God. And fear came upon all their neighbors and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. What then will this child be? Do you hear the hope in that question? Even the fear of being hopeful? Are you serious? You're not messing with me, are you? Can it be that this boy will be the forerunner to the Messiah? If John is really the one, then has Messiah come? We've waited four hundred years for this. I wonder how many Israelites had run out of hope. Generation after generation were still waiting. They had felt like they'd waited so long, there's no hope left. And I wonder how many of you feel that way this morning. Just waiting on the thing that you hope for. Brothers and sisters, as these saints were waiting for the first coming of the Messiah, we await the second. And although our waiting can cause doubt and fear, God's word to us this morning through Zachariah's testimony is this, we can be hopeful because God is faithful. There are certain hopes that may never be fulfilled in this life, but our ultimate hope, Jesus' return and inauguration of the kingdom will be a desire fulfilled. That is a guarantee And this morning, I want to highlight four facets of God's faithfulness, and we'll take them one at a time. You're not going to have to write down all four right now. You can just hear them. I'll say them as we go. The first facet of God's faithfulness is this. God was faithful to send the promised Messiah. We see this in verses 68 through 73. Zechariah's praise and prophecy, though lesser known, is called the Benedictus. Just like Mary's song last week that Jake preached is called the Magnificat. Those are Latin words. Benedictus just means bless. Zachariah's heart is certainly bursting with joy. He is a relative of Mary, and yes, I mean the mother of Jesus, and Mary is with Zachariah and Elizabeth when John is born. So it's not far-fetched to believe that Zachariah has heard about Gabriel's visit to Mary, either from Mary herself or from his wife Elizabeth. And even in Gabriel's visit to Zechariah, Gabriel says that Zechariah's son will be the forerunner to the Messiah. So Zechariah starts by praising God. This is the way that many of the Psalms start. If you've read the book of Psalms, I know many of you have. Praise God, and then a bunch of reasons why he's worthy of praise. The people have been waiting thousands of years for this. Even since Genesis 3.15, which says that God would send a man to crush the serpent. The people of God have been looking and waiting and hoping for the serpent crusher. And throughout redemptive history, God has clarified what that will look like through various covenants. And Zechariah highlights two of the main ones, the Davidic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant. Both of these covenants are mentioned in the text this morning. And I believe Zechariah is intentionally bringing up these covenants to remind his audience and us of God's faithfulness. Kind of like saying, remember these signposts that God gave our forefathers? These promises of a saving Messiah who would reign on David's throne and bless the nations? He's here. This is the one. So he mentions the Davidic covenant in verse 69, which 
references 2 Samuel, a few verses from 2 Samuel 7 say this, God speaking to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever and your house shall be and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So God would raise up an offspring of David to be an eternal king over God's people who would mediate God's blessing to humanity. The second covenant mentioned is the Abrahamic covenant in verse 73, which is first given in Genesis 12 and then reiterated in Genesis 22 after God tests Abraham by telling him to sacrifice his son Isaac. And Genesis 22, 16 through 18 say this, And the Lord said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So this offspring of Abraham would bring blessing to the nations So the Davidic and Abrahamic covenants and all the other prophecies about Messiah all over the Psalms and all over the book of Isaiah. In the book of Isaiah, there are four servant songs. I bring that up because a few weeks ago, Stephen preached on the fourth sermon song from Isaiah 53. Those are all fulfilled and realized in Christ. Those are all sign posts pointing us to Christ. Think about the joy of getting to be one of the people who would welcome this baby into the world a thrill of hope the weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn fall on your knees and hear the angel voices O night divine O night when christ was born in the coming of jesus christ zachariah can praise god because he has visited his people that's why it says we can call him emmanuel God with us. And this Messiah comes to save. Before Jesus is even born, Zechariah can speak as if salvation has happened because he knows that God is faithful. And God's visit to his people in Christ means many things all over these verses. It says, redemption, raised up a horn of salvation, saved his people from their enemies, shown mercy, remembered his holy covenant. Redemption means deliverance from bondage through a sacrificial payment. Raised up a horn of salvation is drawn from the Old Testament and pictures an ox with horns that is able to defeat enemies with the powerful thrusts of its protected head. Mercy and remembrance of his covenant means to experience God's steadfast, covenant-keeping love, to experience his decisive action on behalf of his people. This is what the people of God were waiting for, for 400 years, for even longer. Oh, the birth of this baby meant so much for the world and for the people of God. What a joy it is to celebrate his coming every year with the people of God, to have the blessing of hindsight and to be able to see not only his birth, But his perfect life, his death on the cross, his resurrection and his ascension. And to know that God was faithful to send the promised Messiah. 
and his faithfulness is perfect and unchanging, so we know we can hopefully wait for him to come again. And while we wait, we don't just twiddle our thumbs, we can worship. That's the second facet of God's faithfulness. God is faithful to grant his people worship. Verses 74 and 75. Now I know verse 74 says serve and not worship, but I believe serving God is worshiping God. Coincidentally, in my devotions this morning, I'm reading Luke 4, and as Jesus is tempted by Satan, he says, you shall worship the Lord your God only, and him only shall you serve. So the Lord Jesus Christ combines worship and service into one thing as well. Based on these two verses, verses 74 and 75, it's referring to a wholehearted and righteous worship, not the kind of worship we read about in Malachi. This is the purpose of salvation, brothers and sisters, the purpose of the visitation of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, to deliver us from our enemies. For now, sin and Satan, the power and the penalty of sin, someday from every human and political enemy and even the presence of sin. So the second half of verse 74 and 75 say that we might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Brothers and sisters, this is the gift of Christmas. To serve God with wholehearted devotion in response to the salvation he's given us through his son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. One pastor says it like this. Listen closely. Do you feel more loved by God because he's committed to making much of you or because he enables you to make much of him? Do you feel more loved by God because he is committed to making much of you or because he enables you to make much of him. It is humbling and awe-inspiring and worship-inducing that God will glorify us someday, give us new bodies, cause us to be like Christ, but the purpose of him doing that is so that we can make much of him We shouldn't feel more love that he makes much of us, as amazing as that is. But that we get to live for him, we get to make much of him, to serve him fearlessly. For now, fearless of condemnation someday in heaven, fearless of persecution or oppression. God saves his people to enable them to serve him in holiness and righteousness all our days. There's two sides to this coin. First, A, our service is to have a moral quality to it, namely holy and righteous. Coming off of a sermon series through Malachi, we could say wholehearted, genuine, reverent, loving, worshipful. And God grants that to us when he saves us. It's a gift. All those who belong to God can't help but respond to their salvation with reverent worship. I'm not telling you guys to try harder to worship. 
I'm encouraging you to consider afresh your salvation and the new heart that has been purchased for you through the life and death of Jesus Christ on the cross and to allow the reception of that gift to rebound in wholehearted praise to God. We can't help but offer worshipful service to God in holiness and righteousness. It's who we are as the people of God. And B, the other side of that coin, the purpose is that we would serve him in holiness and righteousness all of our days. Through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, we are brought into the kingdom of God. And being a kingdom citizen means we are devoted to the king and his kingdom all of our days. You've heard it before, but it's worth repeating. Christianity is not just a get-out-of-hell-free card, just a Put your faith in Jesus, say, say this little prayer, and then you can live however you want for the rest of your days. That was kind of me until I actually got saved. To be a Christian means to be transferred from one kingdom to another. And yes, the temporal entry point is certainly filled with joy as sins are forgiven and a person is transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved Son of God in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. But the path we walk is continually full of worship and service to our saving God. He's our Savior and our Lord, the one we want to obey and live for and serve all our days, from the moment of our salvation till eternity, a billion, 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 trillion years and more. God is faithful to grant his people worship. It is the great gift of Christmas. But before that first Christmas morning, John the Baptist would be born as the forerunner. So in verses 76 and 77, Zechariah prophesies who John will be and what he will do. And it's the third facet of God's faithfulness. God was faithful to send a prophet to prepare the way. Here, Zechariah's song shifts from praising God to singing over his son, a prophecy. As was prophesied in Malachi 3.1 and 4.5 and Isaiah 40 verses 3 through 5, God promised to send a prophet to prepare the way for Jesus. And Zechariah's son, John, is that prophet. He is the prophet of the Most High. The Most High refers to God as the exalted, transcendent deity. And this is referring to Jesus, so reason number 4,678, that Jesus is God. It confirms his membership within the Trinity. He is the Most High, the eternal, transcendent deity. So John would prepare the way for Jesus. And how would he do that? We read in verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. We will see in Luke 3, and I'm sure many of you who have read the gospel accounts, that John will come on the scene proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Not that John forgives sins, but the one coming after him will and does. The one who John says is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He says in the Gospel of John, as the Jewish leaders ask him who he is, he says, I am not the Christ. And we do well to live like John lived, to live by the creed, I am not the Christ. 
I cannot save myself, and I cannot save others. But like John, I can live to point people to Messiah. What a joy it would be to have on our gravestones, would it not? Chad Barlow, he pointed people to Jesus Christ. John paved the way for the Savior who came to save. It's the fourth facet of God's faithfulness. God is faithful to save. Verses 78 and 79. We saw that God was faithful to save in the first point as well in the sending of the promised Messiah, but here it is again in these verses. And one commentator titled verse 78, I loved it. I had to share it with you guys. The day spring visitor by the mercy of God. God was faithful to send his son. God is faithful to grant his people the gift of worship and service. He's, he was faithful to send a prophet to prepare the way. And he's faithful to save because he is merciful and gracious. The person and work of the son of God and the person and work of John the Baptist are concrete expressions of the faithfulness of God and his mercy towards his people. It says that because of his mercy, the sunrise shall visit us from on high. In Malachi 4, when we read about the great day of the Lord, we read this in verse 2. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Jesus Christ is that sun of righteousness who has visited us from on high with healing in his wings and causing people to leap for joy. An often overlooked fun fact, when Mary visits Elizabeth and they're both pregnant, Mary greets Elizabeth and what happens? John the Baptist leaps for joy like a calf from the stall at the greeting of the mother of his Savior. It's amazing. Christ came to be light and to give light and to guide our feet into the way of peace, it says. Apart from Christ, every human being sits in darkness and in the shadow of death. We're blind to the glory of God. We're enslaved to and dead in our sins. But Christ came to, to shine in our hearts, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God to save us from our sins, to bring us into the kingdom of God, and to guide our feet into the way of peace. That word peace is a well-known Hebrew word, shalom. It means a person's total well-being as a result of being in harmony with God. Shalom is the antithesis of the fear of being hopeful. Yes, the world isn't as it will be someday. Some hopes may be deferred indefinitely. But the incarnation of Jesus Christ is proof that our ultimate hope will be a desire fulfilled. And that until then we can experience true shalom. And someday we will experience full shalom. Zechariah and Elizabeth are both described in the Bible as being righteous, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, and yet they still struggled with doubt and with a fear to be hopeful. 
But God is merciful and gave Zechariah a testimony of praise and prophecy in which we learn we can be hopeful because God is faithful. You may be hoping for a good gift this Christmas season. And as always, the encouragement is to hold our desires for good gifts from God with open hands. But there is one desire we can hold with closed fists. And that is the greatest desire of the Christian's heart. That is to be with God, face to face, full and forever joy, true and full shalom. For Jesus to return and complete our salvation, we wait for that and we know it's guaranteed. God's speaking is his doing. God promised to send the Messiah and he did. He promises to grant his people worship He did, and he does. God promised to send a prophet to prepare the way, and he did. He promises to save, and he did, and he does, and he will. And he promises that Jesus will come back someday, and he will. So we can be hopeful as we wait, because God is faithful. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and praise you, Lord. We thank you for the the look upon your faithfulness that we've received this morning, and we have hope. Lord, you are faithful. You accomplish your word perfectly, infallibly, every time, and you are unchanging, Lord. You will never change your mind. You've promised to save us, and you will, and you have. And Lord, we rejoice in you this morning and in this Advent season as we consider the birth of Jesus Christ. And as confident as we are that Jesus came once, that Jesus, you are coming again someday, and we wait with hope. And as we wait, Lord, we pray that you would grant us worship as we look at what you've done for us through your son. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our King and Savior and Lord and treasure. Amen.